I had a chance to see my guest a few months ago at Tree Ford Festival uh, with a band, Butcher Brown, and uh, was frankly uh, completely inspired, not just with his uh, facility and uh, sort of timing and the way he phrased his notes, the way he sort of sang through his instrument, but just like the ability to riff off the cuff uh, in a, you know poetry or rap sense and to do it with such ease in front of a lot of people uh, with a band of true fucking, excuse my language, badasses, really unbelievable musicians. And the thing that I left, you know, pondering as I always do is just the idea of in this day and age, in June 2023, how do bands who are creating communal spiritual music uh, how can they sing for their supper? Um, and this is stuff that I want to break down with today. Multi-instrumentalist and poet Marcus Tenney, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, it's brother. A pleasure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I just wanted you to Absolutely. talk about. I want to talk about your philosophy. Sometimes, uh, you know, people bad things you know bad things happen negative things happen uh, to people in their careers or just personally and it it kind of stops their forward momentum their progression their evolution i just wanted you to talk a little bit about like how you learn to take a negative and turn it into a positive um my my skill in that area i think just comes from life experience like i just had situations where i just didn't see a way out um, and so I just kind of had to re like, I felt like you either have to change your situation, the stuff around you, or you have to change yourself. And, w and when I wasn't finding the answers I was looking for, I was like, well, I have to change myself. Um, to me, which is in line with, you know, improviser principles, you know, you have to be able to be you on any type of song. So that's more of a metaphor for life in my eyes. Could you, I mean, can you give an example early on in your life when, you know, like you said, you either change your surroundings or you change yourself. Can you talk about a pivotal moment in your life when, you know, for me, like, it's always about moving forward and, and you have to keep moving forward. And because uh, if not, you, you get stuck. And some people, <clears throat> you know, just based on their upbringing, they learn to take that adversity and turn it into, um, the ability to inspire is there a moment you can point to in your life that 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 manifested um well yes i think the main moment for me there were many but i think the main moment for me was when you know i decided that i wasn't going to continue to chase being a trumpet player alone mm -hmm. and you know i started playing around with other instruments just learning how to write because I really wanted to write music. And so, you know, I had, my brother was playing saxophone and he didn't want to do it anymore. So I ended up getting his saxophone. I was like, I'm going to learn how to play it. Um, but the only, at that point, the only other person I heard that played those two instruments was Benny Carter and then Ira Sullivan. But I wasn't really thinking about it from that aspect of it. I, was just kind of thinking about it. <laughs> I dig. No, I dig. Well, I want to see. Yeah. You know, I want to see what it's like to 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 play this instrument. Like you know, you can't you write for it. You can write for a person without having to be in their shoes because that's the only way we can we can't be in their shoes. But to write for a saxophonist, you can be in their shoes. You can go sit in the front and hear what the trombones sound like behind your head. You know, you can write for a drummer. You could sit at the drum kit and feel how isolated you can be sometimes. And I feel like knowing, knowing those things allows you to connect with musicians deeper. You know, they, they, they know that you know what they're doing. And so that's kind of the driving force for when what I wanted to do when I decided to not chase trumpet anymore. It was like, how do you connect with people? Because that seems to be the thing you're missing. Instead of practicing trumpet all day, being alone, you know, you got to learn how to connect with people to be in this industry. Wow. And so, so I, I mean, is it fair to say that, uh, <clears throat> were you playing live with the trumpet? I mean, how far had you 
you said you were chasing. I mean, my favorite cats, I mean, Blue Mitchell, Woody Shaw, Freddie Hubbard. I mean, those cats, you know, I get healed every time those cats are playing. And when they would play live, I mean, everything was, you know, throw the throw the charts away. You had no idea where they were going as many bars as you wanted. It was always a great story. When you when you decided to to pivot to the saxophone, did you already have a were you already on the bandstand with the trumpet? I was. Yeah, I had been playing I had been playing around Virginia and going on tours all over the world on trumpet. Not really all over the world at that point, more all over the country. Um, but there was, you know, my my trumpet journey has always been musical based. You know, I have always been interested in the music that these gentlemen were coming up with. And I was kind of removed from the process enough to not understand that like the way they, the reason why they sound like that is because they're on the road playing. <laughs> right. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a commercial stress on those skills that's what gets them to the level that makes them noteworthy and so not to say that it was not to say that the art is not pure it is pure but you know skills in general have to be put under a level of stress in order to be actualized i'm um, just like a precious stone you know and so i think that that's what the, the thing about the jazz industry in general that I didn't understand at that time. And I wasn't, I was playing more with rock bands and I was playing with country bands and I was experimenting with singing and I was kind of gaining the skills to be a producer back then, but I wasn't, I didn't really understand how all that worked yet. So my mind was always kind of twisted up from the beginning. <laughs> That's all right, dude. We're all, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm always just, I, I just consider myself a blind monk stumbling into grace, you know, but yeah. The thing, you know, man, like, this is so beautiful. I mean, can you, even if you're sticking with the trumpet, even though, yeah, you were, you had this huge platter of, you know, music that you were playing rock, you weren't playing bebop per se, but, you know, like, <clears throat> can you talk about, go a little bit deeper in your own personal life about this application of stress that um, really allows for, I can't do the poetry that you just said, but, it, you know, it allows for liberation on the instrument. Without that, you're just kind of either in your own bubble or, you know, maybe just wanking it. And can you talk about a stress level? Not a bad stress. I mean, I, I just I keep listening to this album or this one track on uh, Joe Henderson live from the lighthouse. Uh, if you're not mm -hmm. part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I mean, dude, the I it's I mean, Woody's solo Shaw's or solo is incredible. Joe is just out of his mind and it's just, you know what it is? It comes down to, you know, so many of the older cats. Um, the thing I love about those guys, even though I'm, you know, I'm just 45 years old. I mean, when you listen to some of the masters of the music, um, trumpet, sax, whatever, I mean, you know, that, that, that language of bebop was so ingrained in them that they could just riff off the cuff. Yeah. And when I saw you play, I mean, again, we're we're pushing it into modern times now. But I mean, that's the first time I have in a whatever live setting in a long time that I have felt that kind of energy, where it was like urgency. You want to call it stress, whatever it is. I just want you to talk a little bit of riff on that idea of ha the application of tension in order to grow. That, you know, I think it's the same thing, you know, with children. I think they need they need a box to operate in with set parameters that are on the lower side of quantity in order to flourish. Um, because too much rope you can hang yourself with. That's a real thing. And I think, you know, if everyone thinks, you know, I think I think about my skills in relation to playing my C major scale on the trumpet. That's the first thing I learned how to play. Um, some trumpet players started on G, others started on C. And I started on C, C major scale, first scale I ever learned. So the way that I got around practicing trumpet was, I was like, make everything sound as good and feel as easy as C major. And so when you just have that principle running in, in a, a continuous, uh, you know, compounding fashion, 
you'll be surprised what, what you create. That's basically all I've been doing this whole time since I was 11 is like taking that same principle and moving around my whole life and seeing what happens. Um, and I think that that has been something that I've conveyed to so many different students. I have really tried. And so I think this idea of, of uh, you know, the idea, the idea that things need to be put under stress in order to be uh, solidified into something of value, I think is how the whole world operates. Um, you know, you think about somebody like the stories about Kobe Bryant that floats around about how he was very vicious on the basketball court in terms of like, you know, we're practicing today. There's stories about him playing in the rain when he's an NBA player, which is, kind of, I guess, is kind of a no-no, which is seems kind of obvious to me, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> no, yeah, I did. Like, you know what I, I mean? Did, yeah, Someone yeah. Who, has, yeah. who has all he had but still had the drive to continue to push, that to me is the same spirit that Freddie Hubbard had, the same spirit that, that Elvin Jones had, the same spirit that Coltrane embodies, you know, trying to get rid of his isms and i'm like that's <laughs> all of the baddest people in the world operate this way to me i did i i you know matt you're you're it i continue I, 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 yeah oh yeah i mean the other thing was like i i just <clears throat> i'm on my most recent publication my book cats volume four i did uh <clears throat> i'm not sure if you're hip to the sax player don menza legendary horn player studio yeah, cat yeah, yeah. And he was talking about seeing Red Holloway and Sonny Rollins uh, at like some Chinese restaurant in L.A. back in the late 80s or something. And maybe it wasn't Chinese restaurant, but they were blowing. And, and I forget what tune they played, but Sonny just went off. I mean, and <laughs> and, Red, and Red had to follow him. And and after like the Don was just in the audience. But then like after the gig, like Red came up to Sonny. He's like, Sonny, why? Why'd you do that, man? You made me look so bad. And, and Sonny's like on the bandstand, you know, he's like off the bandstand, we're friends on the bandstand. No, <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, truly like, Hey, bring it, you know, like it's not nothing personal, but when we're on the court, you're in the rain. I mean, it's like this idea of continuing. This is really the issue is, and what you did when you transitioned to the saxophone, even though you had some very good musical aptitude, obviously a musical family, you had to play beyond what you knew. I mean, you couldn't, right. I, I would love you to talk about like some of the early gigs. Uh, you don't strike me as somebody who would be shy, even if you didn't have necessarily everything under your fingers. Uh, can you talk about some of those early gigs? I just think it's important for cats to hear from people that are, that have evolved, continue to evolve and they're established within the music biz. Like, can you talk about just sort of the, the, some of these early sessions when you showed up with the saxophone and uh you know sort of maybe maybe situations where you did stumble and fall but you you know you got your you know due to the stress or that sort of impact and then you got back up dusted yourself off and you kept growing right yeah when those first few sessions that i did and like shows i was fortunate enough to come up playing saxophone around richmond and so like there's a lot of uh, opportunity here to to try things with musicians that would musicians in parts of a show that will generally cost a lot of money. You know, a lot of our friends will have high levels of skill and they go out of town to make money. And then when they come home, they're just trying to hang out. And so they'll come do stuff for free down at the club. You know, you're getting a $2,000 a day sound man for 175 bucks in a picture of PBR. You know? <laughs> And I'm like, dude, I love Richmond. I gotta get to Richmond, man. Yeah, go ahead. And there's, there's, you know, now it's not, it's not as family oriented as much, but it's still very community oriented, and it's very industry minded now with all of these new forces coming in. Um, but that, you know, just being able to play with with certain people in the city, and being able to play with a large amount of people playing saxophone those first few sessions they were putting me in situations in studios that were nice engineers that knew what they were doing recording on great microphones learning about engineering production um 
And those first few sessions were creative sessions too. So there was really no wrong answer coming from me. So they would just say, hey, take the saxophone in there and just do some stuff. And I'm like, okay. And I'm just going to play what I know or play what I feel like I can do. And since the tape is rolling, that's kind of the more objective representation of the stress. It's like the tape's rolling, these sure. guys are staring at you. You have to you have to do something cool. And, you know, thankfully they liked it. I think that's when the universe took over. Is once I started playing, once I closed my eyes and started pushing buttons, it was like, oh, here we go. And so, you know, I think just coming at it from that genuine standpoint every time, I think is the key. Like to any type of evolution is just like, or any type of anything. I think if you just give it what you got, then you'll be good. <laughs> I mean, that is spoken like it's, I mean, you're making it sound, uh, it, that is not easy. I mean, that to me is, um, Wow. I mean, you know, when you say the, so let's just talk a little bit. When you talk about the universe taking over, did you just have to surrender to, to that, to that, to be able to sit in the, in the mess that so you didn't have the rudiments, you hadn't shedded for years. You weren't part of, you know, some sort of big R and B band. But when you say the universe took over, it meant that you stopped. Well, that you had, you just stopped playing in, in fear. I don't even know if that's the right word, but what do you mean when the universe took over? What switch, what, what changed? I think when I mean, what I mean by that is like the forces that like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen at that point. You know, once I'm standing on stage and I present myself as having prepared music that is valuable enough for all of these people to pay for. I think that that's the point where, okay, all of your prep, let's see what it adds up to. And once, you know, once you're standing on that stage, that's when it's getting added up. And if it wasn't enough, you're going to know it immediately. <laughs> and there's no hiding. <laughs> and so I'm like, that's why I'm always quick to practice. I'm always quick to talk music, think music, listen to music, because, you know, I don't, I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to touch my horn every day. But I think that if I soak myself in music some way, somehow that works for whatever situation I'm in, I'll be more likely to present something of value in that space. And so like when I say the universe took over, it's like when I get added up on stage in front of all those people, 17,000 people at the Hollywood Bowl, if I would have forgot the lyrics or I would have I would have messed up a horn line like crazy to the point where I would have threw the band off, there's so many eyes that would have judged me. <laughs> That's right. And you know, that it's just right there. It's right there. And I'm like, okay, well, I got to make sure that I have it to a level that's that's valuable to the situation before I get there. And I think that's just the whole, to me, that's been the whole thing. You, uh, value. I mean, it's talking to Marcus Tenney here on the Jake Feinberg show. I mean, it, uh, you say this is really important because I've just I've been kind of on a binge with interviews, interviewing some younger cats lately. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, you're we're kind of just from the same generation, but a lot of the millennial cats that like this, some of them are just not even just you can tell they have a lot of soul. You know, they're just like burning and they are yeah. incredibly incredible tacticians. And yet the one thing that kind of breaks my heart is that what you talked about in Richmond at one time, that family atmosphere, which you said is now still strong communally, but less family oriented. Um, I asked to a, to a man, I said, do you have an elder? And these are guys that are ro not necessarily road dogging, but they're playing tons of gigs locally in Phoenix and stuff. Do you have any elders that you can rely on for not just musical wisdom, just life wisdom, guys that have you know been around longer? None. None. And it's like that family tree of music has really broken down. Part of it might have to do with some of these forces at work that are coming into play. Some of, I mean, I, I just, to me, Lenny White, who's actually coming to Tucson on Saturday with Buster Williams, and I cannot wait to just get my face melted off in the front row. You know, he told me when he was with Art Blakey, or even just in general, when he was in San Francisco, Art Blakey would come in for two weeks you know, at the jazz workshop or whatever. And, you know, one cat, Jake Feinberg would show up. 
have a great night. Then he'd bring back two or three friends the next night. By the time, you know, by the time the two week engagement was over, there was a whole community there right. that I'm not trying to be Pollyannish, but what I'm trying to get at is your musical forefathers, who were some of the elders that, or even today, some of the cats that you rely on just when you feel like you're kind of in a rut or, you know, you need to get, you need to hear the truth. Who are some of the elders that, that have had an impact on you to this day? Um, Mr. Scott was big impact on me personally, uh, just kind of more direct impact because he was kind of bringing attention to the fact that like, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of music, but you need to expand it into a identity because people can identify music everywhere, but they, you know, they can't really pick you out of the bunch. And I'm like, you know, looking at what he represents and what he stands for and what he presents to the world, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, <clears throat> folks like Rashawn Ross, um, he, to me, that, that dude is dedication to the trumpet. Like, it's like you want to come out here and you want to do this in front of all these people. You got to be able to manipulate this trumpet, <laughs> and like you know, you really got to be able to do it. Don't yeah, give right. them something that's not real. Uh -huh. And you know, you hear him play all these notes for all these years, and I'm like, yeah, I remember walking down the street at VCU listening to Rashawn Ross playing trumpet solos. Nicholas Payton, you know. That he yeah. is he is an example of you don't have to walk and you know you don't you can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you know you don't have to just for the, for the non music for the non musician explain what that means. That means that you know a lot of times you you bring value in lots of different ways and you have the capability to bring value in lots of different ways. But I think it's up to you to explore what those ways are and see if there are ways that feel comfortable for you, that, that make you happy. Um, and I think that that, I think that that shines through in those types of musicians because they have gotten their skills to a level that is extremely high, but it's still a part of just who they are. It's like, you're, you're still, whenever I see them perform, I still want to hang out with them more than and I want to listen to them play. And I think right. that if the music makes you attracted to the person, that it's 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 a it's a that's you know that's the thing. My you know that's my time. You're 100 percent right, dude. You're nailing it because like yeah, no, I mean because it's like it, you know I just remember a story recently. I just was listening to one of my interviews. You know, cats would go see this guitar player Jim Campolongo uh, in New York, and you know the guy was not. John McLaughlin or Al Miola, but inevitably he would have these little things that he would pull off these little runs and inevitably all the cats that would go see him, they were all rooting for him. They all, mm -hmm. and, and more importantly, they would leave wanting to get better on their instrument. They didn't want to burn their instrument or throw it in the ocean or whatever, you know, it was like, right. it was an inspiration to keep growing. That is a human life force. Yeah. And to me, like that is what it's about that in music, that is always what it's about. And, you know, I, I just wonder how you, with your students, I mean, again, you know, practical application on the bandstand is always going to be paramount, but how do you get them, and this sort of ties into what Christian Scott said that we can get into in a minute, but how do you get, how do you try to wean them off of the riffology and the technique and get more into that idea of identity and feeling? That to me is... You know, me and you could walk up and down the streets of Richmond, Virginia, and ask cats what their definition of jazz is. We get 20 different answers. To me, right. it's spiritual, burning music with pulse and tension and release. End of story. Doesn't need to go any farther than that. Maybe that's coming out of the American Songbook. Maybe it's not. But inevitably, too many cats are caught up in trans because we just are deluged with so much information. Everyone's got a book out. They're transcribing Elvin Jones solos. It's like, how do you wean them off comping and getting more into the individual feeling of who they are? I think, uh, I can't, I, I don't remember who I heard this from, but they were saying it was, it was a musician that 
I found to be on a scary level, like someone who had a lot of facility, a lot of organized technique, but also understood the soul language and knew how to manipulate it in a technical way, but also knew how to take the technical things and make them emotional, you know, be able to cross that line. But they, that person who was at some clinic somewhere, they were saying that you need to, when you practice, you need to start with the things that you love the most, because that's what's going to drive you to dive the deepest into the song. And then you dive in that deep, you come up with the systems to understand the song, and then you just take those very same systems to the next record. It's very, you know, it was like, which record are you going to listen to a thousand times over? You're going to listen to, you know, some lo-fi yep. thing from 1928? You know? yep. Unless you're super into that, you're probably not going to run it a thousand times. But, like, how many times have we run The Sorcerer? How many times have we run uh, Adam's Apple? Oh, um, yeah. you know, Ready for Freddy. You, Ready know, you for run Freddy, those records man. over. So I'm like, I would tell all my trumpet students, I'm like, okay, you have what's going on in the studio with your teacher. Um, but, you know, I was doing like ensemble work, but I would tell them in private lessons off the record and whatnot, I would just kind of say, you need to have two lists running. You need to learn the songs that you're given in school by the professionals because they are being your teachers. And you need to find what's magical about those, but take that back to the stuff you like. Like, don't that feel like you have to cut your music off keep the mute you know even if it's like if you're a swifty if you're a taylor swift fan you listen to those records listen to the discography know the song forms know the lyrics top line learn the pieces and you will gain valuable musical information that will propel you to wherever you're trying to go based off of what you like you know just the idea that i get paid to rap sometimes at places like the hollywood bowl with butcher brown in Europe, that to me is is amazing because that skill set primarily comes from hanging out in high school with my friends, you know, and listening to rap music. And we would wow. listen to it so much that we just had it memorized more than we had our math homework memorized, more than we had <laughs> locker combinations memorized. I dig, man. Yeah, man. And now it's like that's a skill that has been actualized and realized into value multiple times over many years in many different markets. And I'm like, any skill is worth it to me because you never know where it's going to become value. It's like Zelda. You never know what you're going to need. Let's get that. Get that. Bring it. <laughs> Dude, I need to ask you, um, Going to the high school level, you know, it's so interesting because, uh, I mean, <clears throat> what was so cool about Butcher Brown was that, and again, I'm, I am not somebody who's, you know, I'm going to be turning to, you know, CTI, Freddie Hubbard, and Woody Shaw any day of the week before I turn into doing, you know, hardcore gangster rap or hip hop. But right. what I recognize, what was so cool about Butcher Brown was that you were rapping and the rhythm was round. It wasn't quantized. It wasn't a drum machine. It was like a funk band. And it was so freaking hot. And it, I mean, it, I, I don't think there's much else going on like that. At least I haven't been hip to that kind of stuff. And it was just like you guys were, were bringing the fire in so many ways. And it wasn't, it was real humans, real heartbeats, real pulse. Going back, people would say, you know, I've interviewed uh you know so many of the guys that came up when with traditional american folk music in the 60s guys that were influenced by reverend gary davis and you know uh mississippi john hurt uh you know essentially singing uh, about life and times uh, the the bob dylans mm -hmm. the yorma kalkinens the jeff moldowers the et cetera et cetera Today, everyone says <clears throat> even the folkies of that time today's modern day folk music is rap music. And I was, it took me a minute to really understand that just being kind of a naive cat, but now I get it. And I just wanted to know what were the, what was those, what were the folk messages, the authentic street messages that was so intoxicating for you guys that you didn't even know your locker combinations. Uh, well, for me, it was, you know, as any young kid, I was, I was, uh, you know, a target for certain entities that were not 
not good for children or society in general. Uh, but I think that that music gave me a little bit of a window into how those things were and like just being kids on the street with not much direction coming from any place other than authority. Um, you know, you start to develop these, you, you listen to the older guys who have the things that you want. And sometimes their principles are more militaristic. So, you know, I think between the rap music and between and really seeing what's going on in the street and seeing how people actually operate when they think no one's looking, um, you know, you kind of see what moves the needle and how it moves the needle and, and what I need to adopt and what I need to stay far away from. <laughs> dude, you are, a br this is, so, dude, you just, that was a beautiful little, I mean, let, let, hold on for a second. The, <clears throat> Can you talk about one of the old school cats? Or he may not be known, have any name recognition, but were there like like the last poets, Abidin Oye Wole? I've done a couple interviews with him. Those guys were like, I mean, it was like street corner stuff. But I mean, I, I can you right. talk about it through amidst all that chaos, amidst lack of structure outside of just authoritarian, you will do this or there will be consequences. Right. Who was somebody that you were like, I got, I, I, I got to add that to my to my essence with some kind of like thing that you learned that that's, you wanted to add that to yourself. Um, well, look to me, looking at people like Dane dash and looking at people like 50 cent, I think that those guys to me are great examples of people who have dialed their situations to what was happening around them and found a way to turn a negative into a positive. Um, at least from what it what it what I see from my standpoint. And so some of those things, you know, you obviously there's different levels of people that do levels of things, but I try not to frame things as good or bad. I try to look at them as in terms of force. Um uh, because wow, you know, as a, wow, as a wow. That's what you talk about what do you mean by that? Like in it for as it relates to music, you know. If if I'm on the bandstand and someone doesn't know a song or someone messes up a melody, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna look at them with some kind of you know malignant feeling or or like you know a way to try to shame them. I'm just gonna look and see if you're good. You know what I mean? Because I've seen people fall out, you know, playing trumpet. And I'm just going to look over to make sure you're good. You know, all that air moving can kind of move your bloodstreams in strange ways. And you might fall and hit the floor. Maybe that's why he missed a note. I'm going to look and see. But That's right, man. You know, there's a lot of just things that I think that I just don't, I want to convey positivity and bring value. Because to me, those are the, those are the, that, those are the, those are the moves that that uplift the situation. And I think uplifting any given situation or having anything that that pushes things up instead of down is exactly what everybody needs right now. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, brother. I mean, it's so beautiful to hear you to talk to you, man. Like I, I <clears throat> going back to Christian Scott for a minute, um, when he sort of was like, hey, man, you got so much content, but how are you going to cut above the morass of everybody else that's doing this kind of, you know, doing their thing? How are you going to make it unique? Um, you know, did, was that, was that an intellectual exercise for you or was that something that you kind of, how did you get to, to the point where, you know, Marcus Tenney, I mean, you were, you were just, uh, just going back and forth between, trumpet and sax and rap when i saw you and the greatest thing honestly that was probably the most old school thing it's like the og thing was like like if if you didn't feel it you weren't playing the note you know what i'm saying like it, you chose yeah. very carefully like and not meticulously but just i was sort of waiting for riffology and it never really came and yet it was still so satisfying because i'm so used to you you're one of the really cool cats that left a lot of space in the music and to see you guys in that sort of venue. But in terms of, was that one of the things that, how do you, how have you set, you have tried to set yourself apart with your art? Um, I think clarity is the, the guiding principle for me. 
the clarity. You mean within, within the playing of the, the, the clarity of the notes? The clarity of the notes, the clarity of the, of the rhythms, the music in general, the clarity of the concept, um, you know, just being clear about what you're trying to convey, understanding what it is I'm trying to convey, understanding how, like, you know, what it has to go through in order to be conveyed, and then what does it sound like when it's conveyed to you? And using those three things, I really try to zero in, especially when it comes to taking a solo these days, because I, you know, I used to be of the fan club of taking 50, 60 choruses on one song. I dig. I, I could feel um, that you were like as many bars as you wanted, but I could have, I could have had that. I would have loved that too. But the fact is it, there was so much breathing that the whole thing was like right. one. Go ahead. Continue. It, Yeah. I mean, it, it just trying to keep that one, just trying to keep it like an ocean, you know, that any one gallon of water is not sticking out, but there's tons of them out here, even more than we can see. And so I'm like, well, that's this band, you know, that's Butcher Brown. It's like this groove that we're playing right now is just off the cuff. It's like everyone is improvising this feel and sound right now. No one knew we were going to play this like this. We just knew the form of the song and we all agreed that we're not going to change it. And so the only we change every and anything else though. <laughs> That's right. That you guys, um, how how did you come to that philosophy? Was that just the organic thing? I think it's that's the magic of uh, the music of you, the of Butcher Brown is that you never play the same song the same way once. That is the most. That is the greatest. That you know you never. That to me is the essence of jazz as well. Is that the form is there but everything else is all different all the time. Right. Was that the way Butcher Brown started or um, has that sort of manifested over time where, I mean, it, it, to me, that's, just, it's already an obvious answer is that trust breeds that ability for everybody collectively to be part of the conversation. But right. how has the, how has the band grown in your mind as it relates to never playing the same song the same way once? I think that, I, that you know that attribute right there specifically to, in my eyes comes from Corey because Corey was in a lot of jazz situations that were high end you know playing with Christian Scott playing with Nicholas Payton that right there to me is the cutting edge of music absolutely modern day so, yeah yeah and so I'm like being in those situations you're playing with musicians who who are like in record deals and have relationships with business relationships that, that have them make a make, you know, make an album and then go present the album. So when you, I feel like in that process, when you make a piece of music and then you go out on the road and you push that piece of music, you have the freedom now to deviate from what the song sounds like. You know, if you like for us, for example, Tidal Wave, we can play that song any way we want because when you go look it up, you'll go hear the main version, you'll hear the version we did over here, the version we did over there. So, I think previously a lot of musicians would go tour the record, go play an arrangement, and they were trying to get the arrangement nice and tight and then hit the studio. When you do that, you lock yourself into an arrangement, which to me has different benefits. Um, but I think these are musicians that were were making the art and then going to present it through live shows. And I think that opens you up to to a level of freedom that causes you to not play the song twice. So Corey would come to the rehearsals for Butcher Brown and he would just switch the groove up. And at first, <laughs> you know, it would make people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um but then, you know it's an interesting situation because, you know, he's the only one that was seeing the level at what he was playing. You know what I mean? If Absolutely. Go to Yellowstone and then go sit down with Nicholas Payton or go. And I'm like, I don't know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> so I have no idea why you want to change the groove. But then over time, Corey was just like, no, we're just going to do it like this. We know the songs. And then, you know, Devon would keep us musically together. Like right. Coherent. Right. To the point where it's like this, if it doesn't make musical sense, DJ's gonna stop this. You know, <laughs> and then Andy, Andy keeps things in a in a presentation mentality. 
he kind of doesn't allow things to go to a place where it becomes musically gratuitous, which I think is one of the keys to Butcher Brown, because I think that's the thing that allows us to kind of peek over the jazz fence into some of the other genres is having that level of discipline on both ends. We keep it musical, but we also keep it moving. It doesn't get too, too ethereal. Dude, you're nailing this, dude. Wait, you said gratuitous. That, that that's an interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. music music can get to a place where it can be gratuitous right. to just the musicians on stage, and I think that's one thing that separates the master masters from the masses. Like you know, Sonny Rollins, for example. I don't find a lot of examples of him being musically gratuitous. <laughs> And, and that's to me <laughs> what makes him amazing is that Absolutely. dude, you're improvising that shit because I can feel it. And like you, that is like, that's brilliant. That's <laughs> brilliant. Like looking on paper, listening to is brilliant. Um, and the same thing with any great musician. I think when, when you get into a musically gratuitous space, you're alienating someone. And I'm like, why would you do that? That means that you haven't, you have an all supreme belief that your music is going to hit someone. And I'm like, I don't know where that comes from because <laughs> no one knows what's going to hit anyone. That's the game. But it is the game, man. <laughs> this is so classic. Yo, so do you think cats uh, like, <clears throat> I've always been talking to cats about this lately where I remember interviewing um, uh, Mark Egan, who's, who was the bass player for a period of time with, Pat Metheny and, and so many of these cats when there was like a vibrant, and again, let me be clear, Butcher Brown, man, doing a prolific fall tour, summer tour, going to Pickathon, a lot of interesting, yeah. a lot of interesting festivals that are just like perfect spots for you at this point where we're at as a society. But, you know, when there was like a dynamic touring circuit, Pat Metheny would go out, they road tested new tunes, like 180 gigs. And then basically those tunes took on a life of their own and then they went and cut them in the studio. Do yeah. you think, you think like Nicholas and those and Christian, those cats that they will not necessarily that quantity, but they'll, to me, some, so many younger musicians that, that are trying to figure out the racket and they have a band, they're constantly making record after record after record. And those records wind up sitting on the shelf and atrophying. And so it's like, what do you feel like those cats, Nicholas and Christian, like that they road tested those songs so that the songs could take on a life of their own and they were like a living, breathing organism when they actually did go in and record them? I think with those two in particular, from where I stand and what I see, um, I think that they, I think it seems like one of the guiding principles to the way that they're operating is that they keep the freedom to choose based on how they feel it. You know what I mean? Or like whatever they want to do at the moment. And I think that's the smartest thing you can do as a, as a performing musician is to put yourself in a position of, of improvisation. Um, and to me, improvisation, I've always said this, and I think this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard is that improvisation is nothing but preparation meeting opportunity. I love this. And so I think that, I, I freaking love. You know what I mean? It's like if I'm meeting you for the first time, I don't know what you are, who you are, what you sound like. So my preparation can't be but so targeted. Um, it has to be more sweeping and more efficient and more broad and more sustainable. And you know, when I look at those guys, that's what I see. That's what I hear. That's what I aspire to be. You know, looking at those guys. Christian to me is like the modern day Miles Davis. Like he's pushing lots of boundaries, doing lots of things. And you see that trumpet right next to him. And I'm like, man, that is insane. <laughs> insane you know what I mean? Like just yeah, on a oh, base level, it's just like, that is insane. <laughs> Nicholas Payton is just such a monster musician. Like, I just don't, don't like it's, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, it's like a supercomputer that's always running. Like and it's just, always and, and it's like, and it doesn't and it's never it's like a computer can be sterile, but this is always feeling good. You know, it's always burning. This, yeah, this is a this is a computer that doesn't let you know it's a computer. <laughs> it's got a, it's a successful got a mass. It's 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 uh it's computerness. But wow. like looking at the videos of him playing bass at the Blue Note, 
looking at just listening to the old albums, listening to Gumbo Nouveau, just like uh, Peyton's Place, just all the transcriptions over the years I've done. And then looking at the musicians that he gets associated with, the ones that he's played with, the records he's put out, the awards. I'm like, man, this dude is nuts. <laughs> and we see him at the festival. And he comes over, he's like, hey, what's up, y'all? <laughs> I'm like, man, and he's cool. And like, he's you know, totally, I mean, dude, that's he's the taking best. a stand for yeah. the music that we all know and love. And I think that that is, these are, these are things that the, the, the spoons of time who stirred the pot do, you know. Leonardo da Vinci was not all well and loved when he was here. But then after, you know, his legacy has kind of spread around and it's like you start to see how deep some of his oceans in his mind went. Yeah, we did so many of the cats, man. Like, you know, the, the, their, <laughs> their, their genius was recognized long after they left the planet. Long after they were gone. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I mean, I man, I just want to ask you personally, like, because I am not, uh, I just see so many of my friends, uh, you know, they're in single, I, I use it like, you know, baseball, you know, single A, double A, triple A majors, whatever you want to say that as far as where they're at professionally, but the guys that are really playing original music, um, you know, and they're road dogging it and basically they're trying to keep as many people out of their pockets as possible they might have a, a you know a, a publicity people things like that but the point is that in this time i was actually so inspired to see that you guys it looks like you guys are on the road for like three weeks or a month or something yeah. it seems like a long time i mean you know in this time uh you know, at least for these cats that I follow, uh, they they don't make much money on the gig itself. They have to be out on the road for at least three weeks or more just to just to make a little bit of dough on the merch tables. And uh, I just wonder how you guys have created a sustainable model. To me, you're even with COVID, which you know stunted so much momentum. You guys still. Like you said, it's that non-gratuitous attitude. But beyond that, how have you created a sustainable model so that you are actually able to go out and and tour for a month? Uh, I mean, Mike Gordon from Fish, he's only getting nine days. I mean, unless you're Steve Miller, Tower of Power, Dead and Company, but you know, forget it's just it's 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 absurd. But yet, yeah. you guys, right. go ahead. <laughs> Our our guys, our team is is awesome. We've been like, you know, we've had some ups and downs with infrastructure, um, but we're in a place now where everybody is liking each other, everybody's talking to each other, and I think that that to me is the best part about all of it. Is because, you know, when you see two two people from a team on a project you're working on go hang out over here, it's like, oh yeah, who knows what that relationship's gonna start? That's right. So I think a lot of those things have come together to the point where now we have like a tour. And we've also, you know, previously we've relied on everyone's freelance abilities, meaning like, you know, Butcher's only going to play in these spots. So, you know, feel free to get your, get your scene somewhere else. But I think having that balance of, of, you know, what's Butcher and what's an individual thing, but also being supportive on both ends is the main key because that allows us to have basically a sixth member that will basically provide lots of different things and lots of different situations. Hmm. And it's all a, a thing that we all have put together through our music and through our travels and through our relationships. And I think that's the, that's the best part about it. It's just another connection apparatus. You just went to Never Everland on me, a sixth person. You mean collective? <laughs> oh, that's yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of how I think about it, just because it becomes a. Uh, no, I love it. I, I mean, I got it's going to take me a while to get my head around that, but like it's this, uh, this like the tentacles are out there that make you more elastic. I'm trying to figure out how to put that. It, it opens you up to more opportunities than you may normally have if you would pigeonhole yourself. Yeah, because, you know, it's a kind of a similar idea behind starting a corporation or starting right. an LLC. It's like, you right. know, you have a separate entity that can make moves 
in different ways at the same time in concert synchronization. And I think if we musically treat Butcher Brown that way, we can kind of create a sixth apparatus that, you know, because Butcher Brown can get into rooms that individuals can't. But once Butcher Brown gets in there, then the individuals have an opportunity to interact with, with these people. And then, you know, if uh, a member of the band has a important show that they've gotten as a result, you know, we can find a way to make sure Butcher Brown is the silent backing band. <laughs> oh, man, I dig, man. Thank you. There you go. So, that, you know, now fun it's stuff like that. And that's just surface wow. level. Wow. I, I don't like, think I see that's, man. I just got chills, man. I don't think that there's many, many bands around like that, man. I, you know, I don't think so. I think that that, I think that, you know, that particular thing is how you protect the sound. That's how right. you make sure that such and such, you can do your own thing, sure. But if you need a band and you want it to be easy, let, let's all just go do it. And then that way we make sure it sounds good. And so we're propping each other up. We're still doing our freelance thing. We're still making money a lot of the times, but this is the apparatus that we've used for these different things. Now, you know, obviously we have lots of contracts and radius clauses and we try to be very careful when we do stuff like that. Um, but we definitely always try to use it as a value bringing tool as opposed to a thing that's handing out a check. We try to use it to really make, you know, people happy with that. You figure uh, that um, everyone is kind of, there's no necessarily titular figurehead leader of the band you guys kind of self-police and bring different stuff to the table and everybody kind of whether or not they want to hear it or not they recognize that that's the strength of what that cat's bringing to the table yeah i think i think that that everybody that's that's one of the golden principles of butcher brown is that everybody is willing to like be outvoted <laughs> everyone understands I did, yeah. when they're outvoted that's what happened. There's never any back and forth when we get to that area. And I think that everyone also understands that that responsibility of accepting that L is what makes the band special because Absolutely. we can do things past where we are comfortable. And as long as we can do that, I think we'll continue to grow as big as we want. Um, Cause I think that's the key stepping outside the comfort zone. So I think that is that principle right there, but then also having the respect to uh, really listen to each other and really take a second to consider what they're saying because of who it's coming from. And, you know, that has taken us a long way. It's taken a little while to get that calibrated to the level it is now, but I think any relationship takes time to calibrate, especially as one gets older. But I think that that it, it has definitely made Butcher Brown the the force that it is, and it's going to continue to drive the growth. Because as long as we have that, we'll be good to go. Oh my God, dude! It, it, I am so pumped, right? I mean, the only thing that bothered I told Brother Randazzo, I said we got to get you guys down to Arizona, man. I mean, I was so bummed. Yes. I thought that trip was coming, man. You know, it's up Oregon, dude. I'm telling you, just the fact that you're going to go, you know, what's so cool. Putting aside, you know, just being on tour, having a ball, some shows are good, not so good, or, you know, but still, it's just, it's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, you're floating through time. Um, the fact that you're, like, going to essentially, like, a bluegrass jam festival, you're going to inspire so many freaking cats to push themselves. That stuff is unquantifiable. You know, on my journey 12 years in, 2000 interviews you know i've reconnected older cats just through those interviews and yeah. you know it's like that unquantifiable inspiration and i guess you know wrap it up set one we're gonna have to do set two man you just you had oh, such yeah. a had such a ball but i just i you know set to wrap this up just you yourself i mean i have to believe and maybe you do play gigs where you're just freestyle like rapping the whole time maybe you don't i mean do you how have you learned i mean i remember when early on in my career the cats that helped me find my voice were richard davis and jack dejanette and uh oh you know joe chambers right. and all these i was reaching out to these guys who were playing this black classical music 
because I started my show because I was sort of like I I was just a naive cat at, at thinking that we were living in this post-racial society after Obama got elected and then all this insanity broke out and I was like, well, you know, maybe we maybe we really aren't that great and I have to go back and talk to cats that lived through a, a different time of covert racism. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, so but that but the point is that coming out of that, people are like. Oh yeah, he's a jazz journalist. I'm like, ah, I'm not gonna get pigeonholed. So, you know, I had to go after yeah. Taj Mahal, Bluegrass Cats, the, you know, everything. So basically, it's all music to me. But with Marcus Tenney, how how have you learned to maneuver around the racket and be sort of a chameleon and not get pigeonholed? Oh man, that to me, that's where the the network comes in. That's where the the conversations come in. The beers at the bar after the show. Um, And also, you know, interacting with musicians as much as possible and listening to what's really coming out and what the vibes are and what the trends are, staying tapped in. In my mind, I think that the younger generation is what drives these especially these culture-driven, entertainment-driven industries because they're the ones that are that are driving the spending. So not to say that these are all tied to money, but I'm just saying that- No, you're not. In this, in this day and age, they are. They are. They are. I know a lot of people get upset when I say that, but uh, I just- No, it's, I, you know, it's true. Yeah. It just, and I'm like, they're the ones pushing the spending, pushing the growth. They're buying all the merch. And so, you know, you have to make things- that are what they want if you want to be successful. And I think that there's, if you put that parameter on yourself, I don't think that that means your skills have to diminish. I think it means that you just have to be more creative with what's, what you're given, you know, what, how, what type of lemonade you're going to make out of this. <laughs> and, you know, that to Dude, me I'm loving that. Cause I, yeah, in. man. Cause I'm such a guy. I was like, you know, I want Marcus to freaking, I don't want, to, don't, do anything pop or commercial just go out <laughs> but the problem is nobody's going to be at the merch table after they get, you know what i'm saying like i get what you're saying where you have to say hey how even though i got a you know maybe one hand tied behind my back or a little bit limited like you know how could i you know basically how could i turn chicken salad into a gourmet dish you know right how do you do it and how I'm do like, you, that's the challenge i it's think beautiful. that when i think about every Every entity in the world, like hospital, bank, anything, cars, all these inventions and all this stuff. I'm like, that came from someone saying, how are you going to do that? (laughs) Like Somebody was like, this is how I'm going to do it. And it worked. And like, now we use it. (laughs) That's right. So it's it's only an answer away from that question to me. How am I going to do that? Like, oh, well, let's figure it out. Let's dive in and, and get our hands dirty and we'll see what we come up with. If we like it, we'll keep it. If we don't, we'll put it to the side and, you know, maybe we'll run into the ingredients to spruce it up later. I don't know. But positivity, I think that will be, that brings the most ideas. Marcus Teddy, man, I we could I could hang for nine hours, dude. It, this was such <laughs> a great hang, man. I really am so humbled. The minute I saw you, man, I was gonna say, like, Thank you I mean, you're kind me. of, you're kind of like a, you're pretty sweet, lovable cat. I would say that, like, when I, when I saw you, though, I'm like, you know, in his own way, you know, like all the great leaders, you would say that there's this element of fear, and you're not, not that you're the leader of Butcher Brown, but just like, you know, whether it was Miles or you know, there was just sort of like, even with the professors or teachers, there's always this element of fear. And uh, I looked at you and I'm like, you know, he's an imposing character, but it was so cool to let this time go, interview Fonville, Randazzo, get to the other cats. But just to know how beautiful a cat you are, man, like, you know, mm. you got it. You guys got it going on and you're totally resourceful and they could give you, you know, the worst tomato sauce and stale pasta and you're going to freaking turn it into something so dynamic and grooving i just think you guys are an important force in this time man because of the stuff we've been talking about so maybe yeah. after the tour man we'll, we'll we'll do set two brother yes anytime thanks yeah, for having me yeah man be cool
Yes, sir. You as All well. Right. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Peace. Peace.